You are listening to an audio sermon from Sovereign Grace Church Toronto. For more information, visit sovgracesto.org. Well, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, I believe the text of the sermon should be printed in an insert in your uh, bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, you can grab one from the back of the sanctuary. There's a little table there set up with a number of them. Uh, We're in the middle of a kind of mini-series on the life of Abraham, which began uh, about two months ago, two and a half months ago. We began in Genesis chapter 12, and we're going to be ending in Genesis 24, 25. Today we are in Genesis chapter 19, which, let me say ahead of time, for those who are not as familiar with the Bible, is one of the hardest chapters in the Bible to read. Uh, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not just talking about comprehension. I'm talking about content. Okay? There's, this is kind of like one of those R-rated chapters in the Bible. Um, so uh, we need to uh, be ready for that, um, apply our minds to understand what the text is saying, and, uh, and then to respond to it by the grace of God. Well, this fall, uh, this school year, which starts in two weeks, I'll be teaching Christian theology among a group of high school students at a, a new market Christian school called the Nova Academy. It's the school that my, my three of my kids go to. Uh, Christian theology to a bunch of 14, 15-year-old teenagers. Now, when you hear that, that subject, uh, you probably fall into one of two camps. Some of you might be thinking, Wow, that, that sounds absolutely amazing. You know, that, I, I, I want to go back to school myself to sit through that kind of class because that's the kind of stuff I love. Others would be thinking, boring. Theology is for geeks. You know, I prefer anything than that. Well, if that describes you, if you fall in the second camp, I want you to consider this. Everyone has a theology. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be Christian or a member of a different religion. Everyone has a theology because everyone has thoughts about God. And that's what theology is. It's the study and contemplation of God. You can do that rooted in a religious tradition or rooted in an authoritative religious text or you could root it in your own reason, in your own speculation, in your own ideas of who God is, what he has done, and what he demands of us. It could be that you've concluded that God is distant, that he's perhaps unknowable, or he's indifferent to your existence. Well, that's, that's a theology. It could be that you believe that God is cruel, that God is always frowning at you, that God is disappointed with you. Well, that's a theology as well. There are so many different theologies of God because there are so many different ways of thinking about God. At our church, we would use the term reformed theology a lot. That's, that's a tradition that we align ourselves with, which is that God is sovereign over all things. He's in control of everything. There's Arminian theology, which says that God's work in the world is subject to the free will of human beings. There's feminist theology, which says that we shouldn't refer to God as he, because he's genderless, he's a spirit, and therefore it's wrong to consider him in male terms. There's liberation theology, 
which says that God's primary purpose in the world is to alleviate people's suffering and to lift them out of poverty. There's prosperity theology, which says that God wants to make everyone rich as long as you have enough faith. But perhaps the most popular theology of them all is one that you've never heard of, though you've perhaps tasted and perhaps you've come to believe yourself. It's one that J.I. Packer calls Santa Claus theology. Santa Claus theology. It's the view of God as a jolly old man who wants to make all of your dreams come true. You know, he invites you to come sit on his lap, but if you don't, it doesn't bother him. He's still going to give you your presence. He doesn't ask for much, maybe some cookies and milk, but if you don't provide that for him, he can still get by because he's got weight to burn. He's a God who's always smiling, laughing, always giving you exactly what you want. It's like a genie in the lamp. Well, in our text today, in this difficult 19th chapter of the book of Genesis, we're going to encounter a God who shatters Santa Claus theology into a million pieces. As we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, here we're going to encounter a God who doesn't just smile, he frowns. He doesn't just give, he demands. He doesn't just bless. He curses. We're going to see all of that as God literally rains fire and brimstone from heaven and destroys these cities in righteous judgment. You've probably heard that phrase before, fire and brimstone, fire and sulfur. Well, that phrase originates from this ancient book of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 19. But even in the midst of the darkness of God's judgment, we're going to see brilliant flashes of his mercy that are made that much more beautiful precisely because of the darkness of his judgment. They're like rays of light piercing through a dark and overcast sky. And it is here in considering both God's justice and his mercy, God's severity and his kindness, that we will come to a right theology, the right thinking about who God is and what he asks of us. Again, as J.I. Packer puts it, Christians are not to dwell on God's goodness alone, nor on his severity alone, but to contemplate both together. Both are attributes of God. Both appear alongside each other in the economy of grace. Both must be acknowledged together if God is to be truly known. So with all that said, by ways of introduction, let's read our text today. We're going to be reading the entirety of Genesis chapter 19 before I begin to explain and uh, bring this text to bear on our lives. Genesis chapter 19, this is the word of the Lord. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. 
Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. It's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. 
The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Lots of drama going on. We got incest. We got some homosexuality. We got judgment. You know, we're, we're, we're in for quite a challenge today. Well, the title of this sermon is The Kindness and Severity of God. My aim today is to show you that we must wage war against sin or God will wage war against you. Wage war against sin or God will wage war against you. We will break break up our text today into three themes that run through this chapter. First, Lot's city. Second, Lot's sin. And third, Lot's savior. Lot's city, Lot's sin, and Lot's Savior, first, Lot's city. Verse one says that the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Let's just remind ourselves of who the main characters are in this chapter in Genesis. Lot is Abraham's nephew. These chapters are all about Abraham, the chosen instrument of God, the the object of God's promises to bless him and to multiply him and to turn him into a mighty nation. He's the father of the Jewish people today. Um, Abraham's nephew is a man named Lot. Now, when Abraham first left his homeland called Haran and moved to the land of Canaan, he took Lot with him. But after a time, their two flocks multiplied and grew to such a point that they could no longer live together uh, pasturing their flocks off the same land, and so they separate. And Lot, what he decides to do is leave Abraham behind and move his family, his flocks, into the fertile Jordan Valley, which is where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the neighboring cities reside. It was a land that looked beautiful on the outside, but was rotten on the inside. Back in Genesis chapter 13, It said the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. It's saying like this is like a second Eden. It's a paradise. It looks like that. In some ways, it made sense for Lot to go there. But then verse 13 of Genesis 13 said, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So there's more to this place than meets the eye. It's a beautiful place that's full of wicked people. Now, despite their wickedness and sin, God decides to actually show the people of Sodom exceptional kindness in Genesis chapter 14. In that chapter, we're told that Sodom was overtaken by an alliance of kings. They invade that part of Canaan and they they pillage Sodom and they take Lot, his family, and his possessions into their custody. And in response, Abraham hears about that and he rallies his allies and his fighting men from his household and they go and defeat the western kings and they free not only Lot, but all the people of Sodom. And as Abraham meets with the king of Sodom at the end of chapter 14, who does he give credit to? He gives credit to the Lord. He says, the Lord is the one who delivered you from this. 
He's the one who used me to bring about your salvation. In some ways, you could say that the people of Sodom were aware of who their deliverer was, the Lord, and given an invitation to know him and to turn from their wicked ways. But here in Genesis 19, we see very early on that, that, that not much has changed. These two angels in verse 1 are from chapter 18. They had originally appeared to Abraham, along with the Lord, who had appeared in human form, and now they're appearing to Lot um, in the city of Sodom. As the two angels speak with Lot, they tell him that they're planning to camp out in the town square. They're just going to sleep under the the starry night um, and trust that all will be well. But in response, verse 3 says that Lot pressed them strongly to stay with him in his house. So what's going on here? Is Lot just like a really, really over-enthusiastic host, you know, showing Middle Eastern hospitality and insisting, oh, please, please, stay with me? Or is he trying to protect them from something? Well, the answer is revealed in the next two verses, verses four to five. They say, before they lay down, the angel, these two angelic beings, they eat and they're about to go to sleep. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And notice how verse four says the same thing four different ways. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last men. That, that verse wants you to have no mistake that every single male citizen of the city is there around Lot's house. Without exception, they're all there. They all want the same thing. What is it that they want? Well, they want the men who are visiting, more specifically, they want them to be brought out so that they may know them. They may know them. Now, the Hebrew word know in verse five can mean one of two things. It can mean what we mean when we talk about knowing. It's intellectual knowledge. It's gathering facts about someone, getting to know someone, their personality, their hobbies, etc. But it can also be used to mean Sexual intimacy. Genesis 4, for example, describes Adam, the first man, as knowing his wife Eve, and then they conceive and bear uh, Cain and Abel and later Seth. And then Cain, the son, knows his wife, and then together they have Enoch. So which is it in verse 4? Is it intellectual knowledge? Do the men of the city want these two visitors to come out so they can sit down and have a chat? Or do they want to do something else? Well, the answer is found in Lot's reply to them in verse 8. In an attempt to protect his two guests, Lot offers them his two daughters who have not known any man. Same word there in verse 8, known any man. It's pretty obvious that Lot's not saying that his two daughters have never met a man, they don't have any facts about men. He's saying that they're, they're, they're virgins. They've never slept with a man. And we know that because in verse 8, he doesn't offer to bring them out so that this massive mob of men can sit down with them and, and tell them about themselves. He says, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Now this is, I mean, we should be troubled by that, all right? This is an act of parental abuse and exploitation. We're going to talk more about this later on, but for now... We only need to note that what he's doing is he's offering his two daughters to the men of Sodom to abuse rather than abuse the two men. 
That's what this mob wants to do. All of them want their turn to sexually abuse these two visitors to the city. Uh, this is men talking about men, okay? It's, this, this is homosexual activity, yes, but it's not just that. It is homosexual rape. Old men, young men, it didn't matter. Their rampant, violent, corrupted passion had spread like a cancer throughout the entire city and across generations. So that all of them to the last man wanted to do this. And this is the real reason why Lot pressed the two visitors strongly to not stay out in the courtyard, but to come into the house, into the safety of his family household. He knew what his neighbors would do. And he wanted to protect these two visitors from that. Now, we need to be careful here to make sure that we understand both what the text is saying and what the text isn't saying. What the text isn't saying that all people who experience same-sex attraction, homosexual desire, are like these people. That would be patently false. And that would be a jump in logic that our text does not make. The people of Sodom were exceptionally wicked. It was a generation that was so corrupted that God brought about his unique judgment upon them and recorded, them, recorded it in scripture for, uh, for ages to come. This is an exceptionally wicked generation. The generation we live in is similar but different. Yes, we have people who experience same-sex attraction, but you know the chances are that if you meet a gay man or a gay woman, you don't have to run and hide. They're not a danger to you. In fact, I think if you take the time, you may even find that it is it's quite pleasant to get to know them. You know, when I was uh, uh, when I finished law school back in 2011, and I was finishing my articling uh, downtown Toronto, um, I was in the criminal justice division of the Superior Court of Justice. One of my main mentors was a crown prosecutor who was involved in uh, a murder case that I was involved in who was a gay man. And I remember him as an exceptionally kind and helpful and generous person. And I think most of the, the people of the gay community, uh, you could say that's true of them as well. Another one of the staff lawyers was a gay man and he was married and he had an adopted child. Uh, just a, a kind uh, very nice man, and he always showed me kindness. And so, though Bible-believing Christians, based on what we believe the Bible teaches about sexuality and marriage, may not agree with their lifestyle, may not believe that that's God's will for them to be truly happy in this world, it doesn't mean that we can't be their friends. You know, we, we want to get to the point where uh, we can say, we disagree, but we still love you. And not only for us to say that, but for them to feel that. You know, it, it, it saddens me so much when members of the gay community say, they don't affirm of my lifestyle and therefore they hate me. That's not how I want them to feel. That's not how any Christian should want them to feel. We want them to feel that they are loved and that we want them to be a part of our lives, to even enter into our homes and become our friends. The reality is that they need the gospel just as much as we do. We are sinners in need of God's grace regardless of sexual orientation. And so are they. And the question for us is, can we love them enough to show them kindness, to reach out to them, 
to share the gospel with them? Can we love them enough to show them the same grace and patience that God has shown to us in Christ? We shouldn't run and hide. We shouldn't even keep our distance. We should move towards them in gospel love so that they may know the love of our Savior. However, we need to be absolutely clear here that part of the reason why God judged Sodom was the fact of their homosexuality. It's not the only thing that characterized them, but it was certainly a part of it. Well, how do we know this? Well, from what the other parts of the Bible say about Genesis chapter 19. Ezekiel chapter 16 says this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. That's interesting, isn't it? It's, uh, it's, it shows us that Sodom was not just characterized by corrupted desires. It was also characterized by injustice, by negligence of the poor and the needy. But then it also says um, that they were haughty and did an abomination before me. Do we have the slides there, Andrew? There we go. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. The word abomination there is the same word used in Leviticus 18 and 20 to describe homosexual activity. It's not the only uh, sin that they're guilty of, but it's certainly one of them. And then in the New Testament, Jude verse 7 says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued what? And pursued unnatural desire, desiring sexually a way that God did not intend. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Listen, if we, if we take the Bible at face value, we cannot avoid the conclusion that what it teaches is that sexuality is between a man and a woman. Marriage is between a man and a woman. And anything that deviates from that is not God's original plan. And for those who indulge in that, they're sinning. And they're incurring God's judgment. And let me say this. That is a hard thing to say. Okay, that is a hard thing for me to say and is perhaps one of the hardest things any of us can say. For me to say that to a gay man or a gay woman, you know, to, for them to respond, you're telling me I can't love who I want? Or you're telling me that I, you know, God wants me to end this relationship with this person who's my best friend, my life partner? How could you say that? Well, how can we say that? The only way we can say that in a grace-filled, loving way is to remember, always remember, that we are no better. We are not the righteous speaking to sinners. We are sinners calling other sinners to the grace of God. We may not practice homosexuality, but you know what we do practice? Idolatry. The corrupted worship of things that are lesser than God. Counting created things as of more value to us than the creator himself. Money, houses, possessions, perhaps even our children, our marriages, our careers. You know what else we do practice? We practice self-righteousness. We practice pride. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. These are our sins, and they make us just as guilty before a holy God as anyone else. The only way that anyone can be freed from this guilt is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And the more deeply we grasp this, the better equipped we will be to engage with people who may live a lifestyle that we don't believe is helpful for them, that reflects God's original plan for them, but we can do that with a spirit of love and grace. You know, the men of Sodom had their opportunity to turn to this God when Abraham saved them in Genesis 14, but they didn't repent, they had no desire to change, and so judgment falls upon them. That's what the rest of the chapter talks about when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah, judgment day had come. And it is the Lord who rains down fire and sulfur and wipes out those cities. But then what we see, as, as chapter 19 brings this theme to a close, this theme of judgment upon sinners, what it does in verses 27 and 28 it, is it takes us back to Abraham. Remember what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 18? He's meeting with the Lord on that hilltop overseeing the city. He's praying to God. And he's saying, you know, if there are, you know, will you wipe out the righteous with the wicked in the city of Sodom? Or would you spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous people? God says, yes, I will spare it. 45 righteous people, yes, I will spare it. 40, 30, 20, 10, God says, yes, I will spare it. This is a reminder, my friends, even in the midst of God's judgment reigning from heaven, that God's desire was to show mercy, to even let the wicked persist and to live for the sake of the righteous. God was willing to do that. But in the end, the city was so thoroughly corrupt that God did not hesitate to destroy it. We must wage war against sin or God will wage war against us. That's one of the main lessons in Genesis 19. But there's another lesson here, one that's a little more subtle, but I think more important for us, especially in this day and age. And now we're gonna turn from focusing on the city of Sodom and focus on the person Lot, Abraham's nephew. It's a lesson that we learned from Lot, who once had everything. He was a wealthy man. He had so many flocks that he couldn't live with his uncle, Abraham. He was married. He had kids. He had influence. He had a personal relationship with God's chosen instrument in the world. And yet, Genesis 19 finishes with him in a cave, drunk and naked, being abused by his own daughters. How does that happen? Well, this leads to our second point, Lot's sin. There's no question that Lot is different from the rest of Sodom in a good way. We see that in the opening of Genesis chapter 19 where he he doesn't have any desire to abuse or exploit the two visitors. In fact, he he shows the same kind of hospitality that Abraham showed to to the visitors in chapter 18. There's still something of the grace of Abraham that remains on Lot, It seems that the city of Sodom noticed this and appreciated it, which is actually why verse one says that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. The gate was the place where the elders of the city would have been placed. That's where they would hear disputes, where they would judge and adjudicate uh, decisions, uh, resolve conflicts between people in the city. Lot was there. He's one of the elders of the city. He's been recognized by Sodom as a leading man and given a position of influence. Despite his position, tension between Lot and Sodom remained. 
Lot was happy living in the city. He's comfortable there. He enjoys the respect of his co-citizens. But he was troubled by the lifestyles of his fellow citizens. If you read 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter's commentary on Lot is that he was righteous because as he saw his uh, fellow citizens abuse people and engage in wickedness, it caused him turmoil in his heart. And yet, what we see in Genesis 19 is that Lot was pierced, filled with the spirit of Sodom. It had seeped into his soul and perhaps in ways that perhaps he didn't even recognize. And it shows us that in four ways. The first, as we've already seen, in his offer of his daughters to the men of Sodom in verse eight. You know, Lot did some things right here. Okay, he stood between the men and the two visitors. That was good. He shut the door and then he says, brothers, do not act so wickedly. That was very good. He's calling them out for their sinfulness. But then what does he do? He offers them his two virgin daughters to abuse instead. Now that was an act of cowardice. You might think, well, what else could he have done? He's caught between a rock and a hard place. Well, what could he have done? Well, he could have offered himself. He's not the only one available there to substitute for the two men. But he offers his two daughters instead of himself. He was selfish. His courage only went so far. That's his first fault. Second fault. Verse 15 says that as morning dawned and the angels tell Lot to escape the city with his family because judgment is coming. Um, by the way, Lot, Lot believed that, okay? He, he's getting ready to leave. He's telling his sons-in-law to leave. He's telling them, he's like, up, get up. The city's about to be destroyed. And they laugh at him. They think he's joking. They don't listen. He saw what the two men were able to do supernaturally by blinding the mob of men so that he could be safe. He, he knows that these are messengers from God. And they wield God's authority. And yet, when the angels tell him to get up, verse 19 says, uh, sorry, verse 16 says that he lingered. He held back. He's like, no, I, I, I don't want to go. On second thought, I, I think I'm just going to stay right here. I'm going to linger. As wicked as the city had become, he did not want to leave because he had come to love the things of the world more than the things of God. This is reflected in Lot's third fault. The first one is the selfishness and being willing to sacrifice his daughter. Second fault is he, he lingers. He wants to stay in the city even though it's thoroughly corrupted. Third fault, in verse 17, the angels tell Lot, well, you need to, you need to keep running until you get to the hills. Okay, don't stop. Get to the hills and you'll be safe. And Lot, what does he do? He doesn't say, thanks. You know, thanks for giving me the heads up. I'm on my way. I'm taking my daughters, my wife. We're, we're heading out there to safety. No, he doesn't do that. He objects. Verse 19, he says, I, I can't go to the hills. The disaster is going to overtake me and I'm going to die. Well, he was wrong. You know, God wouldn't let the disaster overtake him. He would have let him escape first. He's just using that as an excuse. You know, the real reason why he didn't want to get to the hills is because he was tired of the nomadic life. He had lived it before. He had been the shepherd. He had roamed around, migrating from field to field. He was done with that. He wanted to settle down in a city 
where he could have security and comfort and wealth and respect of his co-citizens and settle down. He was a city boy now, not a nomad. And he wanted to keep it that way. And so in verse 20, he asked the angels for another favor. The favor of, uh, he looks at a nearby city, a small city. He says, could you, could you spare that for me? Could I go there and live there instead? Uh, uh, please just, just, just tolerate that wickedness so that I can live there. And amazingly, the angels grant his request in verse 21. Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. That's a God-given promise. But how does Lot respond? He responds with his fourth sin. Okay, listen to what happens here. In um, verse 30, it says that Lot went up out of Zoar. So eventually, after Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, Lot is in Zoar, that little city that the angel spared for his sake. And uh, verse 30 says, well, he leaves the city and he lives in the hills with his two daughters. Well, why would he do that? I thought that's what he didn't want. He wanted to live in a city rather than in the country. Well, verse 30 says, for he was afraid. He was afraid to live in Zoar. He was afraid that God would destroy Zoar in the same way that he had destroyed Sodom. In other words, he did not believe God's promise. God promised through the angelic messenger, I will not overthrow the city. And Lot's like, well, maybe you will. I don't want to be there when that happens. I saw what happened to my home city. I don't want to be there again when that happens again. He did not believe God's promise. And so Lot's selfish. Lot's worldly. Lot loves comfort more than he loves righteousness. He was a doubter. And now, at the end of chapter 19, he's lost almost everything. His home, his wealth, his influence. He loses his wife in verse 26, who is running to the hills and she looks back, heads back towards Sodom because she doesn't want to leave her home city either and whatever is raining down from the sky is perhaps a volcanic eruption or perhaps be a supernatural expression of God's justice, we don't know, but she's burned up with it and then his daughters in the cave abuse him and exploit his body. He's a man who has lost almost everything and the question for us is how did this happen? How did this happen to a man who once had so much and now has so little? Well, it all began with a choice. A choice Lot made in Genesis 13 to settle in the Jordan Valley for one purpose, for the prospect of becoming rich. Genesis is so clear in tracing Lot's slow fade away from the things of God and towards the things of the world. Genesis 13, 12, for example, as Lot first moves away from Abraham, it says, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. He's not there yet. He's still living in tents. He's like, I I wanna go here for the land, not for the people. But then in Genesis 14, when the western kings take over Sodom and pillage the place, it says, they also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. He's migrated. He's moved into the city. And then Genesis 19, what we already saw, he's sitting in the gate as one of the leading men of this city. This, my friends, is how compromise works. It begins small with the little decisions that we make, but then it snowballs to the point that you become someone you don't even recognize. 
The lesson we learn from Lot is whether we take the path of righteousness or wickedness, whether we pursue spiritual things or worldly things, whether we walk by faith or by sight, whether we trust in God's promises or doubt God's promises, depends on the small choices that we make every day. The choices that we make and the priorities that we have set us on a trajectory that either lead us closer to God or farther from his grace. Lot made the wrong choice. But that did not mean that all was lost. And that leads us to our third point, Lot's savior. God was watching over him, ready and willing to save him from the judgment that he so clearly deserved. Now this, this has been a heavy sermon, okay? For visitors here, it's like, wow, is he preaching like this every Sunday? No, you know, this, this is... This is perhaps the hardest chapter I've preached on since I've become a pastor. It's full of warnings and stark reminders of the brokenness and corruption of our world and of our hearts. But in the midst of that, there is this shining beam of God's mercy that pierces through it all and reminds us that God is merciful, God is loving, God does care about the redemption of sinners. We see that in verse 16. When the angels saw Lot respond to their warnings, uh, not by fleeing, but by lingering, they don't just say, okay, have it your way. You know, we're going to leave you to make your own choices. You're a grown-up man. We respect your choices. No, they, they seize him and they rescue him. They pull him out of that city that's about to burn so that he could save, be saved. And why? Well, it says, because the Lord was merciful to him. God saved him from God's judgment, a judgment that he so clearly deserved along with the rest of Sodom. So that though he lost much, he would not lose all. He would still have his life. He would still have his two daughters. And why did God do that? Why would God rescue him after all we've seen about how worldly and corrupt and selfish he was? Why would God save him? Was it because Lot had become good enough. He may not have been perfect, but he was good enough. He met the minimum threshold of righteousness. Perhaps he did enough good works, judging in the, in the city gate of Sodom, so that God said, okay, you're worthy enough. No, none of that. Verse 29 tells us the real reason. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. God remembers Abraham. God looks at Lot's life, and he sees his brokenness, his doubts, his selfishness, his corruption, and God doesn't say, okay, does he meet my threshold of righteousness? No, he says, I remember Abraham, and for Abraham's sake, I will save him. That is how God saved people then. And that is how God saves people today. Except today, we don't just have Abraham for God to remember in our place. We have the greater Abraham, Christ Jesus himself, our savior. When God looks upon us, as he's about to cast his judgment upon us, he does not just look at our record of sins and good works. For those who are in Christ, who trust in his mercy, who believe that he died for their sins in their place and rose from the dead in triumphant resurrection. God looks upon us and says, I remember Christ. And for Christ's sake, I rescue him. 
I rescue her. I save them from my judgment for the sake of one who is greater than them, who stands as their substitute. And it is a judgment that God saves us from that looks that makes the judgment of Sodom look like a slap on the wrist. This is an eternal judgment. So the Bible teaches, but what awaits each one of us apart from Christ. But for those who do put their trust in Christ, God's promise is that he will rescue you from the fire of his wrath, even when you linger, even when you struggle with preferring the world over righteousness. God will rescue you and lead you safely into his arms full of mercy. Now in conclusion, there are many lessons we could use to wrap up this chapter, but let me just focus on one of them. Don't be like Lot. Don't be like Lot. He may have been saved from God's judgment, but it was only through fire. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, his work was burned up. All that he lived for was wasted. His wealth that he accumulated, his family that he had built, all of it was wasted as he lay drunk in that cave with nothing but pity for himself. And it was all because of this one thing. It was a love of the world. It was friendship with the world. That's what this text is ultimately about. It's a warning against worldliness. These chapters, as I said earlier, are all about Abraham. They're all about this man who receives God's promises and he's being blessed to be a blessing and he's having children and and, uh, he's receiving these promises. And then here we have this chapter in the middle of that and it's all about Lot. Why is that? Well, it's because we're meant to contrast Abraham and Lot, the spiritual man and the worldly man, the man of faith and the man who doubted, the man of righteousness and the man who lived among the wicked and let that wickedness influence him. This is a warning for us that if we are to be faithful believers who love God, who are characterized by the same grace that Abraham enjoyed, we we must heed the warning of Lot's life and not love the world like he did. Now, I'm not saying that we have to remove ourselves from the world, live in little Christian enclaves or communities, have no contact with the unbelieving world. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the text is saying. We have a responsibility to be a blessing to show love, to be kind, to be good influences on our communities, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to share the good news of the gospel. As we, but as we do so, our prayer should be, Lord, don't take us out of the world, but take the world out of us. Help us love the world without becoming comfortable in the world. Give us grace to change our world and not be changed by our world. And as Lot reminds us, this starts with the little decisions that we make every day. They're not necessarily right or wrong choices. They're not necessarily moral choices. Lot moving to the fertile Jordan Valley at first wasn't a moral choice. He didn't sin by doing that. But these are choices that are important ones that could set us on a trajectory that either leads closer to God or or farther. It could be the choice we make when we decide whether to value Sunday afternoon sports or Sunday service. It could be the choices that we make about where we live. You know, we move somewhere to get a bigger house or a higher paying job, but we leave the community of people who care about us, who love us, and who are helping us to grow spiritually. 
It could be the decisions that we make on a Friday night when we have to decide whether we're going to watch the latest thing on Netflix and binge watch it or start asking and trying to answer the serious questions about life and about God. Let us be a people who live in the world but who are not of the world. A people who remember the warning in James chapter 4 that friendship with the world is enmity with God. This world for the Christian is not our home. And if you're not yet a Christian... I hope you feel this sense of discomfort with the world that we live in. A sense of being unsettled. That there's something wrong with this world. There's something here that isn't supposed to be. And perhaps that would birth in you a longing to learn about the true city that God is preparing for all who are in Christ. Not because you're good enough, not because you're righteous enough, but because you've received a gift of his grace. This gift is for everyone without exception. And so let us stop living like this world is our ultimate home and let's start living for the better city, a heavenly city, a city that God in his mercy and grace will bring us to, not just for our sake, but for the sake of Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God of grace and mercy but we do acknowledge that you are a God of justice. I just pray, Father, that you would help us in light of the darkness of your judgment to cling to the mercy that you've offered to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.